Welcome to the Confluence of Ideas, the Confluence Investment Management podcast, which discusses major trends with the potential to impact financial markets long term. I'm Phil Adler. Our subject today is the emerging need for increased defense spending worldwide and how the industry itself must change to meet new challenges. Awareness of the growth and transformation of this industry may reveal new opportunities for investors. Our guest is Confluence Market Strategist Patrick Perrin Hernandez. Patrick, you've titled a report you recently wrote on this subject, The Economics of National Defense in Great Power Competition. Before we begin, remind us how your background has equipped you to offer expert analysis on this subject. Oh, hi, Phil. Thanks for having me on the show. And if it's okay, let me answer your question more broadly. The truth is that during the Cold War, the last time the U.S. was involved in great power competition, large swaths of the government, the military, and the intelligence community were involved with defense economics. That's because competition between great powers like the U.S. and the USSR tends to be all-encompassing and long-lasting. In such a competition, it takes a lot to understand the interplay between a country's military effort and its economy. You have to understand and manage that interplay in your own country, and you need to understand how it's playing out in the adversary country. And that's what I did as an analyst at the CIA in the years right before and after the end of the Cold War. I worked in the Office of Soviet Analysis, Defense Programs Division, Defense economics branch, where our focus was basically on understanding the true economic cost of the Soviet Union's military effort and how Soviet economic conditions impacted the country's armed forces. For example, we spent a lot of time analyzing different sources of intelligence to estimate the true size of the Soviet defense budget, since the Kremlin tried to hide how much they were actually spending on defense. Then we traced the different ways that that spending weighed on their economy. I'm not sure I'm familiar with the term defense economics. I'm inclined to think that it's an approach to economics that assumes an outsized reliance on defense spending. Am I on the right track? Well, it's not necessarily an effort to goose economic growth by boosting defense spending. Defense economics is more about understanding how a country's military effort affects macroeconomic performance like growth or inflation, and how macroeconomic performance affects the size and makeup of the feasible military effort. Defense economics can also be focused more on micro-issues, like how to design efficient military logistics chains, or even the trade-offs between using different types of weapons for different purposes. Those micro-analyses can involve really sophisticated statistical tools like linear programming, as Defense Secretary Robert McNamara championed in the 1960s when he came over from Ford Motor. And we would be remiss if we assumed the defense industry only pertains to defense companies and defense stocks. 
Right. Companies in the traditional defense industry are naturally a big part of what this particular analysis focuses on, but it's actually a much bigger story than that. A country's defense effort can also affect lots of companies that are ostensibly or mostly civilian, such as the suppliers of dual-use goods and services. And to the extent that the defense effort raises economic growth or increases inflation or requires higher taxes, it can really affect the whole economy. We're familiar, Patrick, with the theme that Confluence Investment Management has consistently discussed for many months, that the world is dividing into two economic and political blocks, one led by the United States, the other by China, and that the prospect of a hot war has increased as both sides become more aggressive. How have the needs and goals of the U.S. military changed as we enter this new era? Our key point, which I can't emphasize enough, is that the U.S., along with the rest of its bloc, is moving back into a great power competition similar to that of the U.S.-Soviet competition during the Cold War. In a worst-case scenario, that competition could end up in a shooting war. Even in a less-than-worst-case scenario, deterring Chinese aggression would likely require a much bigger military. In any case, if the American people want to properly prepare for a possible war, or just if they want to deter China and its bloc, we will need to grow the U.S. military far beyond its current modest size and back to something like the big, heavy, expensive military of the Cold War. The rather limited U.S. military today is geared largely toward the operations that were common in the War on Terror, and that just won't do. So, we need, first of all, more people or troops, and we need to manufacture more and different equipment to support changing military aims, right? That's exactly right. We'll need to expand the size of the force, including everything from the amount of weapons deployed to the number of troops in the field. But we'll also need to shift the quality of the force, say by investing in totally new technologies like artificial intelligence and hypersonics. We'll also need to shift how the armed forces operate. In my article, I lay out all the ways in which a military design for great power competition is different from the military design for counterinsurgency operations. The bottom line is that shifting to a military design for great power competition will take a much bigger defense budget. Where does the United States stand in terms of narrowing the gap between what we have and what we need? Believe it or not, U.S. defense spending has actually been in a modest upswing for almost a decade, spurred on by Russia's seizure of Crimea in 2014. And now, spurred on by the war in Ukraine, it's rising even faster. We expect further defense spending hikes in the coming years, although politics and resource constraints mean we probably won't see a huge, sudden jump in defense spending soon, unless there's some kind of more immediate crisis. Patrick, how do we compare to China and Russia in our military spending? As you might expect for the global hegemon and the world's most dominant country, the U.S. currently spends more on defense than any other country. In 2022, we spent about $877 billion on defense, or about 3.5% of gross domestic product. 
China reportedly spent about $292 billion, or 1.6% of its GDP, and Russia spent $86 billion, or 4.1% of its GDP. However, we suspect China and Russia continue to hide a lot of their spending, and that their true defense burdens are higher than indicated. Besides, their spending is concentrated on a much smaller swath of the Earth's surface than U.S. spending is. Well, it sounds like we are going to have to allocate a lot more resources to support this effort. How much? There's no way for us to predict exactly how much will have to be spent in the coming years to mount a credible deterrence against the China-Russia bloc or, if necessary, to fight it. The actual amount will depend on how the adversaries' forces grow, the strategies we adopt to counter it, the state of our economy, etc. But what we do know is that the current military and the current level of defense spending, which is still tailored toward the counterinsurgency fight of the war on terror is not going to be sufficient. There would have to be a very substantial increase in defense spending. Do you think there is public sentiment for the kind of defense spending increases that are necessary? Now that's a key question. As you know, Confluence has argued for more than a decade that U.S. voters have become weary of the costs of maintaining global hegemony. That's why you see populists on the far left and the far right of the political spectrum arguing for isolationism and an America-first approach to international affairs. There's probably some chance that those populists will win the day and prevent a big hike in defense spending, whatever the consequences. All the same, I suspect there is enough bipartisan, centrist sentiment that supports maintaining the U.S. as the dominant global power and doing whatever it takes to defend it. And the more aggressive the China-Russia bloc becomes, I think it'll just feed that centrist commitment to U.S. defense. But only time will tell. Patrick, what kind of measures is our government likely to adopt to meet this need for substantial new spending? Given that the federal government's fiscal deficit is already large, and given that there's likely to be isolationist resistance to a big increase in defense spending in the near term, we think that at least for the next few years, the approach will be to implement big, but not necessarily dramatic, hikes in the defense budget, and then to supplement those spending hikes with innovative, non-traditional measures to make sure the money goes as far as possible and and encourages other resources to flow into defense as well. So, for example, we note in in my article that Congress is loosening up on contracting requirements in order to encourage more small civilian companies to start bidding on defense contracts, which should increase competition, help hold down costs, and spur innovation. The Defense Department has also set up a program to provide loans and loan guarantees to small startup companies with cutting-edge technologies needed for the military. The idea is for this seed money to help them get off the ground with minimal investment. We in the United States have assumed, I think, that we have the resources to stand alone internationally. It's, it's kind of baked into our history. Will we have to rely on our allies, at least to some extent, this time around? 
Yes, that's another way we can get the most out of our defense budget. With the way the U.S. cut its defense budget after the Cold War, our defense industrial base is now just a shadow of its former self. It can still do a lot, but as we've seen over the last year, it can't quickly ramp up production for many of the key weapons and ammunition that we would need to really rebuild the military. The Pentagon actually already buys some things from foreign defense companies, but we think those purchases will have to expand, especially since some of our allies have capabilities that we don't have, or at least defense-related industrial capacity that we don't have, in shipbuilding, for example. What evidence do you see, Patrick, that this is already starting to occur, perhaps? Yeah, we we do see some evidence. For example, the U.S. is helping Australian manufacturers get up to speed producing certain missiles and helping out with nuclear submarine production and servicing. And of course, the U.S. has leaned on allies such as South Korea to help supply arms to Ukraine for its fight against Russia's invasion, or to help replenish U.S. stockpiles when we've sent our own supplies to Ukraine. In general, we see a lot of talk about internationalizing the U.S. defense industry effort, not to mention increased strategy coordination and joint military exercises with our allies. We mentioned but didn't talk much about the need for more recruitment into the armed forces. What must we do to make the military a more attractive career option, or are we headed toward a military draft? Yeah, this is a big challenge that people aren't focused on enough. Most of the armed services are having real challenges meeting their current recruiting goals, not to mention the challenges they would face if we really tried to boost troop numbers. Part of the problem is that the economy is strong and labor demand is high, which always makes it hard for the military to draw people in. In addition, the current all-volunteer force has evolved to the point where most recruits are actually from military families, and the poor experience that many War on Terror veterans had is probably keeping these military brats from joining up. There's also other problems. Higher pay and benefits might help, but as discussed previously, the military is already pretty expensive, and higher pay would eat up resources that could otherwise be used for weapons, ammunition, and the like. I think we're still in the early stages of figuring out how we could really get more people to join up. And by the way, we'll also need to bring more people with the advanced manufacturing skills and technology skills into defense industry. Patrick, overall, would you say that higher defense spending is good or bad for the economy? at the end of the Cold War, we in the CIA looked closely at the question of when the defense burden starts to impinge on economic growth. And we found that it typically doesn't do that until defense spending exceeds about 10% of GDP. Below that level, higher defense spending actually correlates with faster economic growth. Of course, correlation isn't the same as causality, and it would be hard to prove that higher defense spending increases economic growth. But I think it can. After all, defense spending is a source of demand. National security can also justify investments that otherwise wouldn't be made, and it can spur innovation that spills over into the civilian sector. I tend to think that defense spending can be good for overall economic growth, although I admit that spending on our military can require trade-offs and less spending on civilian government programs. 
You did allude to this before, but just to hammer home the point, maybe, which is more likely, a mushrooming of defense spending or a more gradual transition? Unless there's a big crisis where China or Russia does something that really scares Americans and creates a sense of urgency that we don't have right now, we think the most likely scenario in the near term is big, but not blockbuster, increases in defense spending, supplemented by innovations like contracting reform, co-investments, and reliance on allied suppliers. And what are the most interesting investment opportunities created by this environment? We continue to think that U.S. defense industry stocks have good prospects. After all, as we've discussed here, traditional defense industry companies are likely to face years of increased revenues from the rising defense budget, while contracting reform could potentially make their revenues more predictable and protect their margins. What's not to like there? But as we've also discussed here, the U.S. is also exploring many new, innovative ways to leverage the country's resources for defense. Smaller companies with exotic new technologies may benefit, as would companies providing dual-use civilian and military goods and services. And as the U.S. starts to lean more heavily on foreign defense firms, even as our allies are hiking their own defense budgets, we think investors should keep in mind that certain industrial firms overseas could also see many of the same benefits as traditional defense firms here in the U.S. Thank you, Patrick. Our report today is based upon sources and data believed to be accurate and reliable. We wish to state that opinions and forward-looking statements expressed are subject to change without notice, and this information does not constitute a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any security. Our audio engineer is Dane Stoll. I'm Phil Adler. 